Well, as I said a couple weeks ago and last week, I reiterated it again. We're going to try to follow along with the readings. If you're reading through the New Testament in a year, you should be up to Acts chapter 7 this week. And actually, you should have read read through Acts chapter 7 through chapter 11. And uh, I encourage you, if you haven't got one of those laminated sheets, There are still some out there in the foyer on one of the little tables just outside the doors. And if you did pick one up and you forgot where you put it, start with chapter 12 and start reading five chapters a week. Just five chapters gives you two days to catch up on the weekends when you get busy. But I encourage you because my biggest problem during a week is trying to figure out what to focus on because there is just so much going on in the book of Acts, especially in these, well, all the way through, but these early chapters as the church is getting established. And I, I think it should be a real encouragement for us as well as just a, a, a teaching for us of what the church is supposed to look like. You know, we're going to dress differently. We meet in different kinds of buildings, but really it's the same Holy Spirit. We're on the same commission and call as the early disciples and apostles were called we, we are to go forth and be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're to be carrying out the Great Commission. All of those things are the same. And we can look and say, how did they do it? Because we can think, gee, that's 2,000 years ago. Gee, it's so different today. And really, you, you know, start reading it, you're going to discover they run into the same kinds of things we run into. The same kind of things were taking place. And as we sang one of the songs this morning, Mighty to Save, It was just causing me to think of all the things I read in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way through here. The the words that we sang started out with, everyone needs compassion. Love that's never failing. Let God's mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. That message is so true. Everyone needs a Savior. Everyone needs to know the love of God. Everyone needs to know the love of Jesus. And we're going to see today when we look at the the section of Scripture that we're going to be focusing on, they had issues with certain people there too. They didn't get along with everybody in the natural. Matter of fact, there were certain groups of people they actually despised. And it would be really easy for us to judge different groups of people. It's especially hard to love our neighbors sometimes. And we tend to want to exclude people and thinking they're they're too far lost, they're too far gone, look at the way they're living their life, etc., etc., etc. Well, quite frankly, in my own life, and I know a number of years, and, and most of us here, somebody could have said the same type of things about every one of us once upon a time. I hope there's some of you that weren't quite that bad, but a lot of us were. People could have looked at us and just written us off. God might be good, but he can't possibly save them. The reality is everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs the love of Jesus. And guess what? He wants everyone to get saved. The offer of salvation is for everyone. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for everyone. Will everybody get to heaven? No. Will everybody be saved? No. Because he still has given us the freedom to choose. But what an offer we have. Everyone 
needs a Savior. And we're going to see the birth of the church in a little more detail today. And then we're going to look at a few of the, the, the main characters. If you recall, last week we talked about the title of the book, The Acts of the Apostles. And we discovered and said that actually it could be probably better named The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And then I even took it a little bit further and said, it could be the acts of the Holy Spirit or the church with the Holy Spirit in us continuing the work that Jesus was doing when he was on earth. Jesus' goal was to advance the kingdom. He provided a way for entrance into the family of God. And everywhere he went, he taught about the kingdom. Everywhere he went, he demonstrated the power of the kingdom. And everywhere he went, he modeled love. The love for the lost. I mean, when he'd, he'd go and minister to some people, and even his disciples were like, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to those people? And we're called to go to those people because we were those people. And somehow he rescued us. Acts is a story of the spreading of the good news of Jesus. Basically, that's what it's all about, spreading the news. And this news kind of spreads outward. It's kind of like when you drop a stone in some water and you see the ripples just going out. That's kind of what we see taking place in the book of Acts, the ripples just expanding, teaching, the continuation of what Jesus taught through the church by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, verse that I think most of us are familiar with, when the disciples were told to go to Jerusalem and wait, wait, wait for the power to come, wait for the promise to come, the promise that the Father had given. We know now that was the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit came, and it says, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Guess what? Same mandate today. Our Jerusalem, where we live, where you're at, where you're planted, whether it's here in Palatine or Marshall, Tracy, Tyler, like Benton, Dovery, it doesn't matter where you're parked, where you're planted, where you're sitting. That's your Jerusalem. And if it helps us to think, we could look at our Judea, we could look at it a couple different ways. Maybe our Judea is the extended county. Or we could say our Judea is the state of Minnesota. And then we could say Samaria would be the United States and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's our command. He hasn't changed our commissioning. It's the same commission. In the day of Pentecost, when the power comes, it was really interesting to me. If you, if you read through it, sometimes you come across all these words or names or places and you go, whatever they are, and I can't even pronounce them. But it's interesting. On the day of Pentecost, we're going to look through and I'm going to read in chapter 2, uh, verses starting at verse 9. And I'll probably mispronounce them too. But it says this. This is when the Holy Spirit has fallen. And they're accusing him of, some of them are accusing him of being drunk at 9 in the morning. And here's what it says. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, the Cretans and the Arabs. They all say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, 
What does this mean? If you put up the map, that's the next slide, I believe, and I know you're not going to be able to see it real well depending on where you're sitting, but it's kind of interesting if I, wow, the contrast on that one's a little different. If I had the pointer, you see Cyrene down here by Cyrenica, then you can come across way out there, the Parthians and the Medes, way up there at the top, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, they were scattered from all over the known world at that time, and they had all come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so we already see God's hand at work, just the timing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the timing of Peter's first sermon. The audience that he would have had would have been from all over the known world at that time. It's almost as like God was laying the foundation for what was going to come into the uttermost parts before they even understood what was going on. And we see in, in the week's, last week's message, we looked more specifically at phase one of the commission beginning. It really started on the day of Pentecost. It really started when the Holy Spirit came, and then it really took off when Peter started preaching. And he preached, and thousands got saved. Preached again, thousands got saved. Persecution arose. Things started taking place. It didn't take long, and as you go through the book of Acts, you're going to see this cyclical pattern kind of repeat itself over and over and over. And I think, to tell you the truth, we could probably see a similar similar secular pattern today. It starts out, the word of God is being preached. You or I might share the word. People are sharing the word. The apostles are sharing the word. And what we would like to see more of, signs and wonders were occurring. So everywhere they go, signs and wonders, miracle, healings, deliverance, demons being cast out, lame, paralyzed, walking, preaching of the word. And when this happens, the listeners, whoever the audience was, they would respond. They would respond to the message of Jesus. In other words, they'd get saved, they'd get born again. And the church began to grow. And then as soon as that started to take place, over and over we see the next step, persecution. The leaders would be persecuted. They would be imprisoned. They would be, they would be beaten. Persecution would raise up. Sometimes it was from the Jewish people. Sometimes it was from the Jewish religious leaders, more often than not. Sometimes it was even Gentiles. It didn't seem to matter. Whenever the word went forth, signs and wonders would occur. Persecution followed. We pray here at this church for the word of God to penetrate hearts. We pray for signs and wonders to confirm the word of God. Guess what? That means we're also praying for persecution to come. Because it will. I guarantee you, it would get, we would get more criticism, we would get more complaints, we would get more vitriol pointed our direction if signs and wonders were occurring here every day. I mean, you'd think that makes no sense. We had somebody with a deformed limb. If we had that happen and we prayed from up here and all of a sudden the limb was straightened, we would probably all rejoice. Some of you would be going, was that all set up and fake? And it wouldn't be long. There would be all kinds of crazy things going around our communities. We would truly be the weird church, the cult. We would be all those things and more. Praise God. I hope it happens sooner rather than later. But that's what we're praying for because this pattern isn't going to change. You and I might think, boy, if they see signs and wonders like that, there's going to be a race to the altar to get saved. No, there won't be. There will be some. Praise the Lord, there will be some. But there is going to be more ridicule, more persecution. It's just the way the deceived heart, the deceived mind functions. So when we pray, be ready. 
because you're praying for the word to go forth, signs and wonders and persecution. And the good news is the cycle continues. God will intervene and he will protect his people. He will protect his leaders. He will protect his church. He's did it since the church began in the book of Acts. And then the cycle begins to repeat itself over and over. And we see this over and over. In spite of the threats, in spite of persecution, chapter 5 of Acts ended with these words in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't let it stop them, no matter what. And then in chapter 6, because of the growth of the church, we see a new change or a new transition or a new, new thing being established in the church. The church was growing so fast, there got to be a little bit of a problem. There wasn't enough people to be ministering to the needs of all of the people that were becoming part of the church. And in this particular case, it talked about widows. We need to. And because of this, the apostles, being led by the Lord, being led by the Holy Spirit, because everything they did was being led by the Holy Spirit, the apostle says, you know, we need to be, we need to be in the Word. We need to be praying. We need to get some people. So let's choose amongst us. And this is where the first deacons were set in in the church. Deacons were set in to care for the needs of the body. Now we have the whole body should be taken care of and meeting the needs of everybody in the body, but we also, that's one of the reasons we have deacons. It's a biblical pattern. And it lists about six or seven of the deacons there, but we really only hear a little bit about primarily two of them, Stephen and Philip. And Stephen, we don't get to hear about for very long because Stephen must have been one amazing man. He was preaching. He was teaching. Oh, yeah, he was a deacon. He was preaching, and he was teaching. And it says signs and wonders and miraculous things were being accompanying him wherever he would preach and teach. And, of course, they're in Jerusalem again. The church is still in Jerusalem. And guess what? Signs, wonders, miracles, powerful teaching really irritated the Sanhedrin. It really irritated the religious people. So much so that they challenged him. What do you think you're doing? Who gives you the right to do these things? How is this all happening? And Stephen takes advantage of that opportunity. When they ask the question, he starts preaching. And it wasn't so much a sermon as it was a history lesson to the Jewish people. He's talking to the leadership of the Jewish religion, and he gives them a little history lesson. He gives them something that they would have all heard and they'd have all known, so he wasn't throwing anything new at them, but he was revealing to them something powerful. And as he went through this with Stephen, it says he was full of grace Full of power. That's how chapter 6 ended. And then I want to read at the end of chapter 7, verses 54 through 58. When he started his answer to their question, he started with Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. And he starts there, and he goes all the way to the conclusion of the religious leaders murdering Jesus. How do you think that went over? Not well. 
in seven, verse, chapter 7, verse 54, it says this. When the members of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We've talked about that before, but it's such an amazing picture. We always talk about, where's Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Man alive when Stephen was preaching. He stood up. I, I like it. Some of the theologians, some of the commentaries said, he stood up and gave him a standing ovation. I like that. He stood up. He stood up to see his faithful servant knowing full well what was coming. It made the Sanhedrin so angry. The rest of that reads this. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. What an amazing response to truth. We'll see the same thing. You'll see the same thing. As you share truth, they may not literally cover their ears, but they quit listening. They don't, they don't want to hear the truth. There's a power of deception. Minds are deceived. There's this idea that somehow or other that to, to walk into the fullness of being in the family of God and all that it entails, that somehow or other I might have to give up something here on earth that's really fun. And more often than not, it's sin. The reality is, there is nothing in this earth, no matter how grand it is, that compares to heaven. The last sentence in verse 58, it says this, Meanwhile, the witnesses, they laid a whole bunch of, they brought in false witnesses. They were lying about Stephen. And then the ones were going to stone him. It says, and the witnesses did something. They laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. We are introduced to Saul in this verse, who eventually we all know as the Apostle Paul. And it says, they laid the coats at Saul. As if he was important enough that he was above throwing the stones, but he was there watching. And then in verse 1 of Acts chapter 8, it says this about Saul. And Saul was in hearty agreement He was all in on stoning this guy, Stephen. Didn't matter about the miracles. Didn't matter about the signs and wonders. Didn't matter that the history lesson that he just gave, Saul would have known that whole story by heart. He could have quoted every single bit of it. He was well-educated. He was a brilliant young up-and-comer in the Sanhedrin. And it says, He was in full agreement, putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And at first glance, we go, oh, no. But in God's perfect plan, it took this kind of persecution to take the kick off and launch the second part of the, the second phase, if you would, of the Great Commission. We need to get out of Jerusalem and we need to go into our Judea and eventually our Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Saul thought he was being used by God. He was so deceived. He even tells us that he was deceived, that he was ignorant. That's his own words. I didn't know what was really going on. 
but he was so ignorant and so deceived, he actually thought he was accomplishing the purposes of God. And the religious spirit will do that a lot of the time. Even though they're rising up against what's a true move of God, the religious spirit, in their righteous, self-righteous attitude, thinks they're doing the work of God when they criticize and do everything they can to kill that move of God. We need to guard our hearts all the time against the religious spirit. We are not above being tormented by that same judgmental religious spirit. doesn't mean we don't be discerning, but we need to discern, not just judge and criticize. Persecution and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mouthed mourn deeply for him, But Saul began to destroy. Some translations say he began to ravage the church. It's a strong, powerful word in the Greek. It says he began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women. He was not a respecter of persons. It didn't matter. If you were a follower of what they called the way, you were free game. And the persecution began. And phase two of the Great Commission really begins more in earnest at this time. Put up the map. I think, again, I'm not sure how well you'll be able to see this. But I want to give us a little bit of a picture. See where Samaria is? If you go straight down Judea, the two in the bold print. And if you look just above where the word Judea is, a little bit to the right, you see where Jerusalem is. So Jerusalem was in Judea. So it makes sense that that would be the first place as the church started to get out of Jerusalem because the persecution's getting really intense, that they would be into Judea. And then you see to the north is Samaria. Now, if you know a little bit about Samaria, that doesn't seem quite as logical. It doesn't seem like that would be the place that the Lord would then move in a powerful way. The Samaritans in Samaria. The scene switches from Saul. Stephen is now gone, and it switches to one of the other deacons named Philip. And Philip, and it says he goes into Samaria. Put up the next slide, please. I don't know if you can see that or not all the way back there, but you see Jerusalem here over on the lower right. And if you follow the arrow straight north, that would be Samaria. When Philip took off running... That's where he went. But as he traveled, he preached the word everywhere he went. If he ran into people, he talked about Jesus. And he gets to Samaria, and revival breaks out. Shoot, more than revival, a spiritual awakening breaks out. People are getting saved. Even a sorcerer wants to get saved. And he's doing signs, wonders, miracles are taking place. In Samaria, of all places. How many of you know what the Jews thought of the Samaritans? Do you have an idea what the Jews thought of the Samaritans? They hated them. They despised them. They called them dogs. If you acted weird and had a demon, you must be from Samaria. You got a demon. How many of you know the backdrop of that story? Why did they hate them so much? I'm going to take a little rabbit trail so we understand because when you read the Gospels and in the book of Acts, it's amazing how many times Samaria is mentioned For example, Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. And many, many times they are being exposed to the truth of the gospel. 
this hated, despised group of people by the Jewish people. And this, at this time, the reason for that started over 550 years beforehand. Talk about the Hatfields and the McCoys. They've hated them for over 550 years. What happened way back then is the northern kingdom was, was Samaria, only it wasn't called Samaria at the time. The kingdom, the Jewish people had divided into a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrian king. They were conquered. And what the Assyrian king did to make sure there wasn't a lot of trouble, whenever he conquered a kingdom, he took a whole bunch of those people and sent them over there. And then he brought a whole bunch of those other people and brought them back and planted them here. So what happens is he takes them out of Samaria, what we call Samaria, and he took them into the Assyrian Empire, and he sends a bunch of people from a whole bunch of other places into Samaria. And the first thing they do is they start intermarrying with the Jewish people that still remained there. And they brought with them their idolatry. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. I believe it's in 2 Kings chapter 17, 16 or 17. It talks about God getting involved in this story. When they sent in the people, it says, because they did not have the fear of the Lord, God sent a bunch of lions, L-I-O-N-S, lions, animals, into the area, and many of the people were killed. God got involved with lions, of all things. And the people figured this out. And they, they sent word to the Assyrian king and said, we got lion issues here. And it's because we're not honoring the God of this region, this territory. They didn't get it, but they were sort of close. So what the Assyrian king did was he took one of the Jewish priests that they had relocated and he took him and he sent him back to Samaria and he says, you know, go back and teach him to do it the right way so we can get rid of this lion problem. Well, he did, and the priest went back, and he taught out of the five books of, the, of Moses. But the, the, the people didn't embrace God. They had now this new mixture of religion. So the Samaritans were now worshiping God, sort of, and they were worshiping all of their idols. They hated him. They neglected it. They denied. They didn't give any respect to all the prophets, all the writings of the prophets. They just blew those off. They said the Jews were worshiping in the wrong place. Jerusalem wasn't where you were supposed to worship. So what did they do? They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they said, this is the place Moses told us we're really supposed to worship. The Jews hated them. Cities in Samaria became safe havens for all the criminals from Judea. Religious criminals, other criminals, you get in trouble in Judea, flee to Samaria. They'll protect you. The Jews hated them. They hated him for this whole laundry list of reasons because of the way they turned away from God and were really making a mockery of worshiping the one true God. Then finally, when the the people were allowed to come back, they were brought back to their home country. Nehemiah, if you read in Nehemiah, they were charged with going back and rebuilding the wall and building the temple. Well, there was this group of people who tried to resist him in every way they could and stop him from doing that. Guess who they were? The Samaritans. Jews hated the Samaritans. All of these things, 550 years before now, before this time in the book of Acts, and they'd hated him ever since. And now 
God is sending the apostles and the deacons and believers into Samaria to lead them to the Lord? What is he thinking? They don't deserve it. We need to realize and understand that there are barriers similar to that that sometimes prevent us from being willing to go to others that need Jesus. It can be so many different things. It can be race. It can be ethnicity. There can be historical differences going way back. Oh, I can't stand those people. My great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had a problem with them. They deserve to go to hell. Their language barrier may be there. Their values may be different. Their culture may be different. We could go on and on with excuses and reasons why we would write them off. I believe that's one of the reasons that God caused this spiritual awakening led by Philip in Samaria for us to see that, you know what, the most difficult for us to love, they may be our neighbors, they may be next door, they may be down the block. Boy, when I grew up in high school, no offense, Koreaites, Ballotin and Curry did not get along. Man, there were some great brawls back then. Why? I have no idea. They were from Curry. We were from Ballotin. We allow things like that to prevent us from spreading the good news of the gospel wherever God leads us and calls us. I think that might be one of the reasons we see so much mentioned about Samaria through the Gospels and in the book of Acts. So when the, jumping back to our story in Acts, when the apostles back in Jerusalem heard about what was going on in Samaria, they thought, well, we better send somebody up there and see what the world's going on. So they send Peter and John up there. And Peter and John see what's going on, and they praise God for what God's doing in Samaria. And it says they prayed for him, they laid hands on him, and they got filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they went back to Jerusalem and says, it's awesome. They're getting saved. Those dogs in Samaria are getting saved. God loves them too. Jesus died for them too. As they're going back, they're so impressed what they've seen. It says they stop basically in every little village and every little town all the way from Samaria to Jerusalem preaching the word of God. And people were getting saved. Now Philip, he was heading back to Jerusalem. And I love to imagine this story because it, it, I can't imagine in my mind how it would transpire. And if I could imagine how it could transpire, I'd like to think, what would I have thought of what was going on? Philip is heading back to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, he gets spoken to by God, and he says, uh, I want you to do is I want you to get to Jerusalem and take a right. And I want you to take that dirty, dusty road through the desert area and head down toward Gaza, down towards the Mediterranean Sea. That's where I want you to go. Well, what does he do? Remember what God is looking for in his people? He's looking for availability, and he's looking for obedience to his call. And he will give us the grace and the boldness. Philip was available. He heads back to Jerusalem. He takes a right and he heads down towards Gaza. Only before he gets there, he sees an Ethiopian eunuch sitting in a chariot alongside the river. Look at how God works. This was a servant of the queen. 
of Ethiopia. And he's sitting by the river, and guess what he's doing? He's reading the Word of God. And he just happens to be reading a really critical section of Scripture that would give anybody an opportunity to preach about Jesus. And the Spirit tells Philip, he says, go up, talk to this guy. And what would you do? What would you do if you're walking across the, the, the Walmart parking lot and all of a sudden the Lord says, see that guy in the car over there? Go talk to him. Are you kidding? What would we do? I'm hearing demons again. I'm losing my mind. Philip was available and he was obedient. He walked up to the Ethiopian eunuch. And they have a conversation and the guy says, could you help me understand what I'm reading? And Philip looks at it and goes, oh boy, can I ever. And he preaches Jesus. And he shows him Jesus. And the guy says, what must I do to be baptized? And he says, simple, really. It's pretty simple. What you need to do is you need to believe. If you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And his response was, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they went down in the river and they got baptized. But then something amazing happened. Philip vanished. How cool would that be? I just get dipped in the water by this guy. I come up and I'm rejoicing. I open my eyes and he's gone. That's pretty amazing. What if you're Philip? You dip him in the water and you stand up and you're ready to praise God with him and you're gone. And you find yourself in another city. What would be the logical thing to do there? Check into a hospital. Call Captain Kirk. Okay, that's for us Starfleet guys. You know what he did? He started preaching. And he says he preached all the way from Azabus all the way up to Samaria. Can you go back to that map again? I forget which slide it was. I think it was the last one. This is a rough picture of his trip. Headed from Samaria down to Jerusalem. Whoops, take a right. He headed over, but he didn't even get down to where he was headed further south. He sent him over to Ascalon, and then he went north, and he preached his way all the way to Caesarea. That's what he did when God moved. He was available and obedient. And this guy that he shared with was a key figure because of his position and his authority. So phase two of the Great Commission is taking place, Samaria and Judea. Phase three is ready to take place, begin to take place in earnest. But there's something that needs to be accomplished before phase three is going to be launched in its fullness. And this is where we go back to the story of Saul, the guy who was standing there and, and watching the colts were throwing his feet when Stephen gets killed. It says he was in hearty agreement. He started ravaging the cities. Matter of fact, it appears he did such a good job in Jerusalem. He says, this is great. I got to go further. He he goes and gets permission and letters that he can go to Damascus and do the same thing. Persecuting the church. But God had a different plan. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether they were men or women, he might take them into his prisoners, take them back to Jerusalem. 
The problem was he didn't get to Damascus. Most of us know the story from Sunday school, but what happens is he's on his way to Damascus and the Lord meets him on the road, drops him to the ground. He's blinded, he can't see. And he's taken to a house, but the Lord speaks to him. There's, a, there's an interesting conversation. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. It's really hard to kick against the pricks, isn't it? Paul, Saul. Back in that time, that little phrase there doesn't mean anything to us, but when they would be driving the oxen, they would have a long stick with a point on it, and they'd, when the oxen stopped, they'd poke them, and poke them, poke them. Instead of going, sometimes they'd stand there and kick, and you'd poke them some more. It's like Jesus is saying, Saul, how many times do I have to poke you? And he goes, and then there's another man who becomes available. We don't know anything about this guy. It could have been you. And God speaks to him and says, Ananias, I want you to go to this house on this street, and here's the message, and oh, by the way, you're going to deliver it to Saul. And he goes, oh, no, Lord, you must be mistaken. I've heard of Saul. Obviously, you haven't. And he says, no, you're going to go to him. I have chosen him to take the message to the Gentiles. This Jewish expert, illogical choice by God once again. You're going to go, not to the Jews, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And then he added a little caveat to that message. And I'm going to show him all the suffering that he's going to have to endure for my name. You know, when we get called by the Lord, there is going to be sacrifice. There's going to be suffering. But we need to have the attitude of Paul, count it all joy. Praise God, we get to suffer for Jesus. Our suffering probably won't be anything like his. But it's going to be there. There will be persecution. Let's see, I think I'm down here. Saul, what did he do? Immediately it says he started preaching. Can you imagine that going from, I want to go arrest and kill and torment and torture and ravage them, and then the next thing you know, three days later, he has this encounter with Ananias. The scales fall from his eyes. He can see, and he just says he goes straight, straight to the synagogue because he was Paul or Saul, and he had some clout, and he starts preaching Jesus. Can you imagine what they thought in the synagogue? They didn't like it much. He was instantly transformed. And I want to challenge you and me. When we have that encounter with Jesus, it should transform us. You cannot walk away unchanged from an encounter with Jesus. That initial encounter we have with him, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Yeah, there's some things that are going to take a little while to get rid of, but there should be this transformation. And when we meet with him, it continues to transform us by, by more and more into the glory and the image of Christ. Are we changing? Are we different? Paul's journey, and again, <clears throat> he started preaching right away, but oh, it didn't go so smooth. Um, there's another slide, but you're probably not going to be able to see it very well anyway. Well, you can see I went a little better. Paul gets saved at Damascus. He preaches. They don't like him. He escapes. He goes down to Jerusalem. That went well for a little while. Um, he got to visit with Peter. That was good. And then he saw James, the brother of Jesus. That was good. And he keeps preaching. And then the Hellenistic Jews decide they need to kill him. 
So he leaves, and he is taken to Caesarea. That'd be number five. And they take him up from there all the way to Tarsus. Now, it's interesting because when you, you can't get all the time frames from just in Acts. But from the time he got saved in Damascus, it says he went into Arabia, number three, two and three. And we know that between Damascus and Arabia, it was three years before he went back to Jerusalem. And he was there for a little while, and he got ran out because they were going to kill him again. And they eventually got him all the way up to Tarsus. And depending on how theologians study and read the time frame, it was anywhere from 8 to 14 years from the time he got saved in Damascus until he gets called to Antioch where the church is exploding and Barnabas is there. And he says, i got to go find Saul. We sometimes think that the moment of salvation, God use us, and he will. But we have these grandiose plans and grandiose ideas. And God says, you know what? I need to prepare you. You need to study. You need to prepare. You need to discover who I am. You need to discover who you are in Christ so that you're ministering out of your healing, out of the newness of who you are, not out of your pain. It takes some time. And, and Paul really makes this clear when he wrote a letter to Timothy. And I think this is a super encouragement for us. In, in Timothy, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verses 12 through 16. Listen to it carefully. I thank, this is Paul, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength and he's considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. You've all been appointed to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace, faith, love, all in Christ Jesus, poured out on him abundantly. Here is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. We need to get this. doesn't matter who we are doesn't matter what we've done. doesn't matter the situation or the circumstance. Paul's saying, check it out. He saved me. He called me. He's given me responsibilities to be part of carrying out the Great Commission. His grace is sufficient. His strength is there. It all comes from Him. The faith, the love of Christ in me that comes from Him will be available through me. He goes through all of this. Paul was an undeserving sinner, the worst of sinners. So are we. We were that. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that still defines you. But the good news is, God in His mercy and by His grace saved Paul just as He saved those of us in here who are saved and just as He can save you if you've not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The strength, faith, and love in Christ. We don't have to conjure all of this up. It's deposited in us from Him. 
God will appoint us. If you don't know where you've been called to do or what you've been called to do, I can help you. You've been called to be planted where you're planted and bear fruit where you're planted and to be going out and completely sharing the life of Jesus, the hope of Christ, advancing the kingdom wherever you're at. The details you and God will have to figure out. But it hasn't changed. That's who we are. And I love that last part where he says, God has got patience. Some advice for what it's worth for me, don't test this patience too long. Because we never know. We never know when our time on this earth is over with. God is patient with us. He is long-suffering with us. I mean, he lets us make all those choices and live lifestyles that are not pleasing to him. He lets us do all that. But you know what? His patience. I don't want, I don't want my life to end before his patience runs out. And he's using himself as an example. And as we continue through the book of Acts in the weeks to come, we're going to see that God continues by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the church to continue to carry out the work that Jesus began. You don't look that excited about it. I have to think about that. I have the Holy Spirit, God living in me, and what I'm supposed to go do is do what Jesus did. I mean, think about that. That's what we are supposed to be doing. Doing the work that Jesus started, we are to carry it on till we take our last breath. And when we take our last breath, we go home to glory. Everything else on earth pales completely. The same Holy Spirit is working in you and me, if you know Jesus, as was working in the disciples, to accomplish this task. The important things that are required of us haven't changed either. Our availability and our obedience. We make ourselves available. We're obedient to what he tells us. His grace will be sufficient. So we need to be available to respond to the call on our life. This is so important. The first, none of this begins. None of this begins until you're born again. That is the most important response you'll ever, ever make. To acknowledge that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and Jesus is the only way. He died on the cross in your place. He was raised from the dead. And in him we have eternal life. We need to confess our sin and surrender our lives to him. That's where it begins. That's being born again. If you've never done that, man, you need to do that. And if you don't know how that looks or what that's like, ask somebody. I can guarantee you anybody in here that knows would be so excited if you would ask them. Be responsive to the call. Have a teachable spirit. That's critical. A teachable spirit that the Holy Spirit can teach us, guide us. The Holy Spirit will use brothers and sisters in Christ to teach us. Have a teachable spirit. Be available to embrace all that we have in Christ, all that we are in Christ. That's my one-string banjo. Who are you? You're a child of God. You're a child of God. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. We can just boldly go forward as the Holy Spirit leads us. Leads us. And we need to be available and obedient. But as I said, it begins with your response to that first call to salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the 
the illustrations and the examples that you have for us in your word. God, I hope, I pray that you would remind us again that these are, these are just people like we're just people. But God, like them, we are your children. God, that we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. And God, that we have a task to do that we would not get comfortable, that we would not get lazy, we would not give the enemy room to come with fear or intimidation, but we would walk out the call you have on our lives to be light in our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to just fill us, overwhelm us with the love of Jesus, that we might love others, that we would not look at people like the Jews used to look at the Samaritans, and disqualify anyone. Lord, I thank you for saving us. And I thank you that it's your heart that none should perish. And I thank you that you give us the great privilege of being your hands and feet, your mouthpieces to a world that's looking for answers. God, that we would have the faith of a Stephen or of a Philip to be obedient, to bring you glory and honor. I pray, Lord, as we go our separate ways, even this morning, you will go before us, that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, keep us safe, protect us, allow the love of Jesus to fill us, that we might lead others to Christ by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.